I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The Athletic. Right, Reds, Tony Evans here with Walk On, your Liverpool podcast from The Athletic. Another Anfield annihilation as Liverpool made up five wins from five at home. We'll talk about the win against Forest, discuss how the Reds midfield has clicked so quickly and talk about the unity shown amid Luis Diaz's ongoing family situation. And to do all that, we have James Pearce and Simon Hughes. As ever, we'll start with those three words. Now, Simon doesn't want me to come to him because he hasn't even thought about it. We do it every week and he never thinks about it. So, James, James, give him a give him a prompt. <laughs> I'm going to go for Zabazlai bossing it. Oh, nice, nice. Simon? I have had a think, Tony. I have had a think, a little think. Europa League winners. Oh, very nice, very nice. Well, I mean, let's see what they're saying over on the Walk On Podcast Facebook group. Mark Miles, Tricky Trees Chopped. Isaiah Talbot, Delightful Dominic Display. Bill Parry, Rare Routine Win. And Jeff Lowe, Liverpool Love Lucho. What will I say about this? I don't know. It's all going too well, if you ask me. I mean, it's one of those rare periods, isn't it? When there's no... We're not on the roller coaster. Everything's, everything's so sane. They're my three words. To join our community of listeners on Facebook, just search Walk On Podcast and join the group. Well, the one thing that actually isn't sane is what's happened, obviously, with Luis Diaz. And it was an emotionally charged afternoon against Nottingham Forest. Jürgen Klopp says it was the most difficult circumstance he's faced preparing aside for the match. James, what's the mood in the camp? Yeah, a great deal of concern for someone who is close to everyone's heart at Liverpool. You know, Luis Diaz is is a very popular figure right the way through the club since that £50 million move from Porto in, in January last year. And you could sense it waiting around in the interview area after the game on Sunday that football was pretty far from people's thought. You know, as impressive as the football was on the pitch, it, it paled into insignificance because everyone's thoughts and minds were with Diaz, who was anxiously awaiting news about his parents. Just a horrific situation. I mean, we obviously we kind of woke up on Sunday morning to the, the news that his parents had been kidnapped in, in Barrancas, where he comes from, the northern part of Colombia. Thankfully, his, his mum had been rescued quite soon after, but the search for his father goes on. And as we sit here now, everyone's still just hoping and praying for, for some positive news on that front. Yes, I mean, it's one of those things where people look at football and sometimes I think the man in the street kind of thinks of players as robots without feelings or, you know, it's almost like football manager, put them into my computer and get on with it. But clearly they're all human beings and something like this has a huge impact, doesn't it? Massively. Um, credit to his teammates, really for putting the performance up that they did. Because I believe that, I think you were in the, the team hotel when the news came through the night before. Is that right, James? Yes, that, that's right. Yeah, yeah. They were, it was 
very late on Saturday night when they were in the Titanic Hotel in the city when when they got the news. So, so, the, so they'll have obviously seen this sort of unravel in front of them. And as you say, Tony, it's, I think now like we sort of think of footballers as, as people who should just deal with, with everything that comes their way because of the money that they earn. But they, they do still have families. And I think ultimately that, that's the, the one bit of solace that some of the footballers might have because they are under a lot of pressure. They're un, in, you know, in the public eye all the time. They're being judged all the time. But the families are the, the people who they can usually turn to. And I know from sort of doing a bit of research on Diaz and his background, you know, it's a very big family, but a close family as well. So, um, yeah, I, I can't imagine what he's going through at the moment. He's sort of detached from it as well. I don't know whether he's going to go back to South America or not, but particularly being sort of separated from the event. I'd imagine there must be a feeling of helplessness as well. Yeah, definitely, definitely. You could see what it meant to the players and holding up a shirt, after the goal, what was the atmosphere like when you spoke to them after the game, James? Yeah, I'd, I'd say very understated and keen to make out that everything they'd done on the pitch on Sunday had been for him. I think, you know, Jurgen Klopp summed it up best when he said, you know, it was, he said it's very difficult motivating a team on a day like that when you can try and build a game up as being so important, but it's not, is it? Not when something like that happens to someone you're very close to. So he said all, all we could do was try and give it some extra meaning by saying we fight for our brother Lucho was how he described it. It is a very close-knit bunch. We've talked about that numerous times on the podcast already this season in terms of that spirit and unity and what is a relatively new-look group. That There is a real sense of, of togetherness there. And Diaz lives in Crosby. He's got Jota, Adrian and, and Nunes amongst his neighbours. The South American contingent of the club are incredibly close-knit in terms of socialising together. Diaz's parents have, have visited Anfield a number of times. So yeah, the people I've spoken to, they just say, you know, it just puts everything into perspective when you're worrying about your performance, a game, getting the job done, everything else. It was like, none of that matters in circumstances like this. And they just hope and pray that, you know, we get the resolution we all hope there is and that we see Diaz back out there in a Liverpool shirt before too long. Yeah, hopefully him and his family will all be okay. Let's talk about what happened on the pitch. I mean, Simon, I said... It's all going a bit too well. It's a bit too quiet. It's a bit too nice in terms of the football. There's no alarms. There's no panic. You know, this time last year, we were all worrying about it, but everything looks very, very good football-wise, doesn't it? It just sort of feels like one of those, it's going to be one of those good Liverpool seasons. You can always see it, and you've been able to see it under Klopp, distinguish the good seasons from the bad ones, you know, the other not-so-good ones very early on. And you can just see... I think with the Liverpool team at the moment, there's an energy there and an enthusiasm amongst the players. And they're the two things that make you think, well, the fans are going to end up happy one way or another by the end of the season, whether that constitutes a title race or a title challenge or a, even going for the title. It's obviously very tight up there at the moment, tighter than it has been between a number of teams at the top for, for quite some time, I would say. And Liverpool are scoring lots of goals. You know, they're finding it easy to score goals. I mean, I, I was... I was at the Toulouse match on on Thursday. I've got to say, I was just really impressed by the sort of the the aggressiveness of the team in a game where it would have been easy to maybe take the foot off the gas, but they didn't. I mean, Diogo Jota's goal it was just sort of came out of nothing really, and just really went for it. And that's what it sort of feels like at the moment. It sort of feels a bit like sort of the twenty eighteen nineteen periods where, okay, you know, there are some established players still hanging around from that team, but the new players are given that that sort of vigor. We discussed it last week. They've got a good run of games coming up, haven't they, Liverpool, to really press home 
sort of where they want to be in the league ahead of the Manchester City game at the end of November. I mean, I, I would expect Liverpool to take maximum points in this period. So it should really send them into that game with a lot of confidence. The only frustrating thing is it comes after the international break, I think, as well. So it's like these sort of games, you want them in the middle of a run, not starting another run, really, because I just think... I, I'm happy to still have another run against City. You know, it works <laughs> for me. Yeah, well, you, you know what I mean, though. It's, it's like sometimes it, that, that momentum going from other games into a big game like that, it, it adds to the game itself, I think. I always remember, I mean, I always thought the best game between Liverpool and City was the, the game that they lost Liverpool in, in, in the 20, what season, 2018-19 season when the level was so high in that game at, at the Etihad. Liverpool shouldn't have lost that game, really. They, just the, 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 you know, very sort of fine margins, as, as a term that James would like to use, sort of went against them on the, on the day, but it was the quality of the game was so high. And that's what I mean. You know, it's like you want, you want the games when the, both teams are really at it, not sort of coming off the back of long flights and not having sort of the training standards that they'd be used to in the, in the, in the midst of a run of games. James, as I say, it's almost too good. The goals are coming from everywhere. Salah's having absolute stinkers and scoring. Which you know I love. You know, the stats five wins from five downfield scored fourteen goals in those matches. Three in every match apart from the Derby. Second successive clean sheet at Anfield, only conceded twice. You know, it looks good. Yeah, and it certainly looks like that fear factor for teams coming to Anfield again has been well and truly restored. I know Sunday was the year anniversary, wasn't it, of, of Leeds winning at Anfield, the last team to do so in, in the Premier League. And, you know, you look at that week that Liverpool had had on home turf to knock Everton aside, you know, to steamroller to lose with effectively a, a second string team and then do likewise to Forest. It bodes, it bodes really, really well. The biggest thing for me was, I, I know before the last international break, Klopp was saying, you know, we lack stability. And he said, you know, as, as much as it's been promised and so far, you know, we still need to take big steps. And it, it, and it feels that the evolution of this team has gone to the next level. Of course, you need to caveat it's a little bit by the calibre of the opposition they're facing at the minute because, as Simon said, they're in a in the midst of a, a quite a kind run of fixtures that they need to take advantage of. But that was what impressed me most about the victory over Forest was just how routine it was. I mean, you go back to last season when obviously Liverpool were a fading force, you know, that miserable day at the City ground when they lost to them, even back end of the season when Liverpool were on the up. You know, they made such hard work and beating Forest 3-2, got pegged back twice. What a contrast to Sunday where they just barely got out of second gear. It was just about as one-sided as a Premier League game as you could possibly wish to see. It was probably dull at times in the second half, but in a good way because Liverpool just controlled it. And the authority that they showed, I think that that was why for me that was a, that was a real step forward. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Walk On, brought to you by The Athletic. Talking standards, the midfield, compared to last year when we had weekly therapy sessions on this podcast, full of angst and saying, what are we going to do? James, the difference a year makes. Yeah, it's like night and day, isn't it? And I think the most remarkable thing is just how quickly it has clicked. Because I think that was always the big kind of question mark against Liverpool. I remember on the eve of every season, you have to write season previews and bold predictions. And it, 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 real, it really felt like a head scratcher this time around. Because I think it was like, well, really know what to expect. How quickly will these players settle after so much upheaval, so many big personalities moving on in the summer. But it's been remarkably seamless. And, and when you look at the balance in that midfield, like there was on Sunday, you couldn't really have asked for anything more, could you? I mean, I thought that was by far and away Alexis McAllister's best performance in that in that holding midfield role. Of course, it was only Nottingham Forest, but his performance gave Gravenberch and Zabozlai the platform to really push forward and absolutely torment Forest, really, with their creative spark. And yes, yeah, Zabozlai... You're almost taking it for granted now that he's going to be an 8 out of 10 every week because he's setting crazy high standards. Yeah, but we didn't get Mason Mounds. <laughs> Simon. Oh, you know what, right? I, I was watching, I caught the second half of the United game and I saw this number seven in the United team trudging across the pitch. I was trying to think, who's he? No, I was, I was, who's this fella? Like, and then I remembered it was Mason Mounds. I mean, he looked like he was... Running in quicksand. Um, anyway, Man United is another debate. I'm sure you'd be happy to have, Sony. <laughs> but you're right. You're right. I mean, I, I thought he would have been a good signing for Liverpool Mason Mount. You know, listening to Rafa Hollenstein, who, who's, you know, quite honest, he's been surprised by how much Zabozlai has, has adjusted so quickly to Liverpool. He didn't see him offering this level of dominance in the midfield. When I was asked, you know, how is he going to do? I was quite cautious in my assessment because uh, there was always a sense for me that actually we should see more of him. And perhaps that he was a victim of modern football not affording players like him the number 10 luxury that he would have had maybe 20 years ago to just pull the strings and does these little flicks and beautiful things that he can do. I guess they're underestimated just how how tough he could be, how high his work rate is. And again, I think Liverpool, seeing something in him that others didn't, managed to, I'm not sure uncontested, but definitely steal a march on the competition because they were scouting him for a position that I think most clubs at that level perhaps hadn't thought of at this moment in time. And that's, I think, where the real, the value of the deal was. They they scouted a, a number eight, whereas everyone else thought he's a number 10 or a sort of inside winger. And uh, for that, perhaps he wasn't that exciting. I just love watching a player who plays with that level of authority. I think it's quite... You know that's that's what I see in him, authority, and particularly in midfield, in midfield play, you don't you don't see that so much anymore. He really stamps his influence on the game. He sort of dominates the whole area of the pitch, whether it's through passing or running or tackling. Um, 
Yeah, he's been a, a revelation. Yeah, I mean, some of us thought Bellingham was never realistic, and but everyone wants him, and, and no one's it. He's one hell of a player. But Sabozlai really is he's great consolation. I mean, and... And who knows how things will develop, James? I think what it what it does underline is that for for all the the work that goes into to transfers and the data and the analysis and the scouting and the the character references and checks and everything, also sometimes just you need a little bit of good luck and fate plays a part because we rewind to certainly the back end of last season after the decision had been made not to pursue Bellingham. Um, for a whole host of reasons, mainly that they couldn't commit such a, a huge chunk of their summer kitty to one player when they clearly needed to bring in um, multiple players in that midfield. And also they had no commitment from Bellingham that, that he wanted Liverpool. I think he still would have picked Real Madrid. But but yeah, you know, then Liverpool's two targets at the time were McAllister and Mason Mount. The way things turned out with Mount at the minute looks like an absolute blessing in disguise. And we don't know whether Mount may well have flourished at Liverpool because I think the culture is very different to the one at Manchester United and he's not the only, he's not the first and probably not the last who's gone to United and so far hasn't come close to living up to the price tag. But yeah, Liverpool were very keen on Mount, you know, after a pursuit that had gone on for a little while, he he made it known that United was his destination of choice. But it, it wasn't quite as simple as that because also when he ended up going to United from Chelsea, the, the numbers involved in that deal, Liverpool just wouldn't have got involved in any way because, you know, they valued Mount, who had a year left on his deal at around 40 million. I think United end up, ended up paying 60 million and you know, wages are 250 grand a week plus. So the numbers Liverpool wouldn't have got to. But yeah, it could have been very different if Mount had turned around and said to Liverpool, no, I want to play for Jurgen Klopp. Thankfully, he didn't because it, it led Liverpool to Zabozlai. And then even even then, you know, it was because I kind of, I've asked a few people about, you know, why did Liverpool essentially have a clear run at Zabozlai? When you look at it now, you think, why were they not absolutely queuing up to buy him? But a lot of clubs had kind of asked the question, and and because the deal was so heavily weighted in terms of money up front, I think that £60 million release clause, that had put teams off. And, and it was something that Liverpool really thought, you know, it wasn't like it was, you know, a no-brainer. They went, you know, here's, here's the £60 million, not a problem. It was, they did kind of agonise over that for a while. It is a lot of money though, isn't it, James? It, it's, it's still, it, it is still a lot of money, but the whole point in football is... The money doesn't matter if the player turns out to be good. You never think, ooh, they could have gone on for 10 million less or 20 yeah. million less. You just think he's a good player <laughs> and he, he's going to be really good. So I can understand why other clubs would have been thinking, ooh, 60 million. There's only a certain number of clubs in, in European football that could afford that fee. But at the moment, well, certainly at the moment, and I would have confidence that it's going to prove to be a really good sign. And it's a false economy football, really, isn't it? You know, like if, if the player plays, performs really, really well, He'll either lead the club to some sort of success, which leads to an economic boom off the pitch, or he'll sell loads of shirts. And, you know, Zabozla is already, you know, selling quite a lot of shirts, I believe. I don't think it's enough to cover the 60 million. But it's all things like this. I just think if he, if he turns out to be a good player, you know, no one's ever thinking back, oh, he should have saved 30 on him or whatever. Like, it's just, it's just a, a pointless conversation. But Liverpool, to be fair, you know, went for it, didn't they? And I think they, they deserve credit for hanging the hat on him because obviously other clubs just weren't willing to do it really yeah and it's also a little bit of a punt getting a player you know from the Bundesliga Naby Keita is the perfect example there is always a question whether they'll adapt to the pace and the physicality uh, the Premier League but you look at him 
he looks if he was made to play in this league. I think the physicality is definitely, his physicality has definitely helped him. You mentioned Cater there. And I remember before he came to Liverpool, when I spoke to people that, that had watched him regularly, hard to believe now, but a lot of the people were saying, oh, he's physically, you know, he'll run the show and, it, you know, he brushes people off and he's combative and all the rest of it. And then that was actually a part of his game that really let Cater down. When you look at Zabozlai, he's an incredible specimen in terms of just forget his technique and intelligence just as an athlete. In fact, when you go back through his career, when he was coming through the ranks at at Salzburg, he was breaking all the records, you know, for the the fitness tests and the bleep tests and everything else. And I remember he he told a story when we interviewed him on the preseason tour in Singapore a few months ago, where he wanted this tattoo on his arm and his dad said to him, well, you can only have it if when you go back for preseason, you break all these records that had stood for a number of years. And he went back and, and broke them all. So I, I do think that has that has helped him. The fact that he hasn't, because we always talk about him. Oh, you know, you have to adjust to the extra pace and physicality of the Premier League or whatever. But that he's just, it's just not a problem for him, is it? I've I loved that touching modern day family story. You know, I said, "Hey, Dad, I want a tattoo," and he just went, "Dope." Wow, you know, now it's a, hey, Dad, I want a new, a new tattoo. Well, I'll tell you what, break all the records and you can get as many as you like. <laughs> You'll be the illustrated man. <sighs> Did you get the tattoo of Daffy Duck, Tony, in the end? <laughs> no, no, it's, uh, you know, I've just got love and hate on me knuckles. <laughs> the most important thing, kids, is make sure your tattoo is spelt right. Remember that Manchester Untied, you know, uh, Mason Mount's probably got that. <laughs> Let's talk about other midfielders. I think Gravenberg has shown some signs, isn't he? I mean, I was a bit unsure when they signed him, but he's beginning to look as if he's going to be a very good contributor. I think so. I think one of the things that has helped is that he's playing in what a lot of people consider to be his best position as well. When um, when he first signed for the club, I went over to him. Who'd have thought that was work? I know exactly, exactly. Like I, th- I think because of his physique, it was sort of assumed that he'd become that sort of the number six where he'd sort of dominate the central area of the pitch. But everyone I spoke to said he's better, you know, a, a bit ahead to the left, really, you know, as a, as a sort of number eight. Uh, I know we hate talking about numbers in this way, but it's, yeah, it's definitely, I mean, from, from what people who've followed his career have said it's it's historically his, his most effective position. And I think over the last couple of games, you've seen that he's grown in confidence. I mean, it, there were a few times in the Toulouse game where he was blowing, you know, he was blowing pretty deep into his lungs. Uh, I think that's been a big thing for him to get used to, you know, faster pace of game anyway. And then there's the demands of, of clock, which are double fast as well. But he, he, I just like it, you know, technically he's very good. He's good in tight situations. He'll work himself out of a tight situation. He's got that, you know, Wijnaldum had that a lot, you know, sort of could sort of twist and turn past an opponent and open up space for, for a teammate. Gets his body in a good shape, doesn't he, when he's receiving the ball? He's really good at that, really, really good. Uh, and what I like as well, he's, he's prepared to have a go as well. You know, he, he'll try and make that key pass or he'll, he'll try and shoot. There was a moment against Toulouse, not, obviously not his goal in the first half, where it felt like the chance had gone, but he, he managed to fashion an opportunity for himself. So that's what I want to see a bit more from the Liverpool midfield. I think... We discussed it before. Obviously, there's, there's been the, the era of the, the, the players when they've ran and ran and ran and ran. 
to sort of create chances for the for the teammates. This is a different Liverpool team now, and I do think the midfield. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Hang on, hang on! Didn't we all like really love Tiago because he looked really stylish going side <laughs> to side? <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, he's the fact that he's still injured and no one's really mentioned him. He's just totally been forgotten, hasn't he? Uh, which is sad because I. I do like him. I like him as a player. Pass the ball forward. I like you more. <laughs> I haven't. Liverpool have not seen the best out of him. It's fair to say. No, that's that's oh, fair, that's and 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 that's not all his fault. To to be fair, but let let's get back to those who are performing. I think uh, uh, Gravenberg, James. It's amazing because Curtis Jones will be kicking himself, won't he, for his suspension because it's allowed. You know, the Dutchman to get like uh, a foothold in the team. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was thinking that the other day. It's going to be, going to be interesting, isn't it? How, what happens now with with Curtis? And of course, there's the way the schedule is. There will certainly be plenty of game time for him, but he'll, he'll want to start the big Premier League games, won't he? And I think he's now got a real battle on his hands, and that that's why the the red card came at a really bad time for him because he started the season so well. When you think of all the the kind of the talk and the buzz around the four midfielders that come in and. You know, and on merit, Curtis Jones was in was in Liverpool's best eleven in those opening weeks of the season. But yeah, when you look at the way in which Graven Birch has has come in and and adapted and kicked on and and given that midfield another dimension, really, with his bursts of, of pace and creative spark and ability to to finish as well. I think, um, yeah, it's I mean, it's, for Klopp's perspective, it's an absolute dream, isn't it? It's what you want, you know, you especially when you want to be maintaining the challenge on numerous fronts you, you've got to have those options and that that's why it, it just feels like such a positive environment at the minute where everyone keeps on stepping up and it does it does remind me of that quadruple challenge season where Liverpool maintained it on for so long because you know certainly in the other competitions that season whenever Klopp made seven or eight changes it just felt like others just it, it was like seamless in terms of the, filling those gaps and there wasn't a massive drop off in quality and yes there's a long way to go this season but that's that's the way it feels I mean it was brilliant to see Wataro Endo score his first goal for the club against Toulouse last week that that performance felt like a big step forward for him because I think it's only natural that he'd be probably a bit anxious and frustrated that he's only still got one Premier League start to his name but he couldn't have done any more I mean Gravenberch I think I think Simon's right in terms of I think the endurance factor with Gravenberch will probably come the more he plays because he essentially had a, a year sat on his backside watching on the bench at, at Bayern. So it's, I think he, there's there's probably a process of, of building that up. But yeah, it's that midfield department is so exciting now. You know, and Harvey Elliott is, as well is is coming on and impacting games and doing exactly what Klopp asks of him. And it's chalk and cheese, isn't it, compared to sat here a year ago talking about a midfield that couldn't run, that couldn't fight, that couldn't create. You know, the one thing it does make me wonder though is our podcasts more entertaining when things are going wrong because we're all too happy here now aren't we <laughs> you know i have to have a i have to have a side swipe a poor old tiago to get some grit into it who can we target then tony go on well we did we did have a go at united let's just target united that's <laughs> you know, the enemy you know it's um how how close how how far away do you think united are from getting anywhere near where they were because you know, you know when I think about it, like when I when I thought between nineteen nineteen two thousand and one, you know, eleven years, it felt like an eternity. Liverpool not winning the league, and they felt quite close to winning the league in two thousand and one. I must say, you know, after the, winning the treble, United have had that spell now, and they're no closer now than they were at any point over that period. 
I just think, you know, they're, they're in danger, aren't they? Of really, of really, really slipping away. I think people might say, well, it's just, you know, the right manager will get it right with money. But right across the club from the top, there just doesn't seem to be a vision of what they need to do to get to where they want to be. I just don't see that changing anytime soon, really. And, you know, the contrast with Liverpool's dressing room is just remarkable because that United dressing room have got used to get managers sacked. Yeah. And they're going to get another one sacked very soon. It's great entertainment. <laughs> so, kiddies, if you're a little bit bored, you say, oh, it's all going too well for Liverpool, just take some pleasure in United's misery. We're sponsored for this episode of Walk On by LinkedIn, so it's only right that we crowbar in a reference to Liverpool's super slick recruitment process while we talk them up. Because when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. And that's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like Arnie Slot, probably. In any given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. In fact, on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. So hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash walk. That's L-I-N-K-E-D-I-N dot com slash walk to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Have your say and get involved by emailing walk-on at theathletic.com. Anyway, today marks the final day of Black History Month. And Syed, you, you've written an awful lot of stuff on the subject of black players with Liverpool, a great book with Howard Gale, and um, in particular, two pieces this month. One about the infamous picture of John Burns and the banana. That was a game I was at. And today, uh, a, a piece about Trent and Liverpool 8 and the city's complicated history with black footballers. It took... A long time for a black player to get into the team, and there's 88 years. One thing that sort of got overlooked, really, in, in sort of the conversation around Trent Alexander-Arnold getting into the team, obviously, 2017, he's, since 2017, or sorry, 2016, when he first played, he sort of, his emergence was in 2017. But since then, him and Curtis Jones, who, you know, is of mixed heritage as well, and was brought up in just near Chinatown, right close to Liverpool City Centre. They've made like 400 appearances nearly for Liverpool. That, that, that should be passed over the course of November, which is incredible because before then, collectively, I think Howard Gale played five times for Liverpool um, and he was from uh, Liverpool 8 area of Toxteth. And, you know, there are the three other players who sort of were in the first team mix, but only collectively made, I think, 10 appearances between them. That was Tony Warner who didn't play, but I sort of feel like a bit unfair to say to Tony Warner that he didn't play any role because he was on the bench all the time 
and there and available and did, you know, was in contention, if you like. And then there was Lee, Lee Peltier and John Ostemabor as well. So it's quite incredible, really. Like, like I think I think it's really encouraging in some ways that the two players that have mentioned who are in the team now, it's barely been mentioned as, as a piece of historical significance. I think it shows that maybe the conversation around races has moved on to some extent. But I think what it also... What also makes me focus on is the fact that Liverpool's black community still exists in the same place as it always has done. Largely speaking, you know, Liverpool black people feel more comfortable in, in that area, but they don't feel that there's the opportunities in other parts of the city. Still, still, there's still that sort of feeling. And it's a thing that we don't really like to acknowledge, but it sort of contributes towards segregation still existing in Liverpool. We see Liverpool as a multicultural city city now i've just tweeted you know that it's not multicultural it's multi-ethnic and this is the view of you know quite a few people within the black community in toxic and liverpool Ace. is that you know the, the multiculturalism that exists in liverpool is just really in liverpool Ace. it's not in other parts of the city you know you do see people from different parts of the world with restaurants on lodge lane and people from different backgrounds living in Liverpool Ace. But that doesn't translate in other parts of the city. You know, people might say, well, oh, you've got a row of restaurants up on Bowl Street, which that proves that Liverpool is multicultural. It doesn't really. That's a very sort of narrow way of looking at it. So I think over the last sort of 10, 15 years, you know, that there was a view, you know, from both Merseyside clubs that it sort of felt like Liverpool Eight was a bit of a no-go zone for footballers. That was for a number of reasons. There wasn't really many junior amateur clubs to, to look at. There wasn't as much organised football there as there was in other parts of the city. It's also its history as well. You know, you can't underplay the significance of 1981 where Howard Gale makes his debut for Liverpool, or sorry, really sort of launches himself into the first team by performing in Munich and then getting substitutes. And then a couple of months later, the riot or the uprising of the riots happen in, in Toxteth and Liverpool late, which creates a perception around who he is. And I think that's a, it's a massive part in the, in the city's history and, and it goes a long way to explaining why football talent in the city hasn't really been explored as much until maybe the last 10, 15 years, really. You're seeing the fruits of that now. There's a lot of sorts of players from that area who are both at Liverpool and Everton and have had professional careers because of their involvement at those clubs. But I, I just sort of think as a people from Liverpool, that's multicultural and it's everything's, you know, great, we're accepting. It's like, well... The evidence of that isn't quite there, I would say. If you look in Liverpool City Centre, there still aren't many black faces in, in the business district on any day if you walk through it. There aren't people in senior positions other than Joanne Anderson, who's the, the, the city mayor. Um, a lot of black people feel that like they have to go elsewhere to other cities like Manchester, Birmingham, Bristol, London to find that opportunity. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's quite an uncomfortable comfortable conversation for a few people because I think we think we've turned a big corner, which we have. But it hasn't gone quite as far as maybe we like to think. No, I mean, definitely, you know, you go to the North Ends and you very rarely see a black face and, you know, the vast swathes of the of the area. And, I mean, it's traditionally been like that. And, I mean, it was ghettoised in a different way. You know, it was Catholic Protestant. Um, but certainly coming from Liverpool to me, to me, Liverpool 8 was always like sort of exotic and, you know, something strange, which a district shouldn't be like that. In the city, it still feels separate from the rest of the city. Yeah, it's, it still does. It still does. I mean, I, I interviewed a few people in Liverpool late to do this piece and went down Lodge Lane, which feels totally different to say some of the main streets in other parts of the city. Which you know, you might say, well, you know, there's 
you know, parts of Walton which feel more Polish or Eastern European now because there's been a big influx of of people from that part of the world in, into that area. But really, I would say it still feels separate. I mean, I think part of it is down to geography as well. That the mere geography of the place doesn't help because Liverpool Ace, for people who don't know, who maybe listens in other parts of the world, is right next to L1, which is right in the centre of the city. The, 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 the postcodes in Liverpool don't go according to how close you are to the city centre necessarily. That's the best way to sort of describe it. And Liverpool Eight is the next district along. But there's almost two parts of Liverpool Eight where there's the, the sort of the Georgian quarter, which tourists tend to not come to at Liverpool, which I find incredible. It's only sort of being recognised in the last sort of 10, 20 years. And that is the area where a lot of the, the sort of the rich ship merchants lived. Over the other side of Upper Parliament Street, which is still Liverpool Eight is the area where, you know, sort of the, the black communities from West Africa, East Africa, uh, the Middle East and the subcontinent all still mainly live. Now, there, there is a discussion to be, you know, part of the discussion is about some of the players that I've made into the first teams at, at both Liverpool and Everton. So Victor Inichibi, for example, is from Crosby, where, where I grew up, which is seven miles north of Liverpool. It'd be a really interesting interview, Victor Inichibi, I think, because... Um, he hasn't really spoken to the media that much, you know, since his retirement. But uh, I'd be interested to see how his experiences were different to to people in Liverpool late. But he he up until Trent was the the local black player who'd made more appearances than anyone for either of the clubs. I think he played about 160 times for for uh, for Everton before leaving. But as I said, you know, there, there, there've been lots of players who've sort of come out of Liverpool late. It did have a really healthy adult football, amateur football scene. And that's how Howard Gale was spotted. This is the thing. Howard Gale wasn't spotted playing Sunday League football or, or amateur league football in his youth, where he lived in Norris Green. He was spot, He had to go into the adult leagues and play for the Bedford and basically prove how, how tough he was, really. And that's why, what got him into Liverpool until, you know, the last sort of 20 years where you've got this... I know you've... I saw you wrote an article about it a few years ago, Tony, in The Independence about Kingsley United uh, with Earl Jenkins. Until... Earl came along and Kingsley were formed, which was actually born out of a split between Tiber FC um, and Stanley House, which which Howard ran. There wasn't really that that sort of that platform for young players in the area to play from, really. And it's it's, it's quite a sad story, really, because Howard, you know, having written his autobiography and how I spent a lot of time with him, I mean, he is clearly scarred by his experiences at Liverpool. And I think there's two things, two last things to say here, really, is that I think it contributed to the way he felt like the amateur scene for, for juniors in the area should be. He wanted more of a control over over players and wanted to create a, an academy as such, really. Uh, and it was, you know, by his own admission, advising players not to go to Liverpool, to go and try out at, at some of the smaller clubs in the region and work their way up. But Earl Jenkins felt that that wasn't the way to go because by limiting the exposure, you limit an ambition, really. And he felt, and he he felt oppositely. But I think I think where I feel really sorry for Howard is is that I think there's a perception on the outside that Howard did represent Liverpool ace, but in many ways because of his experiences at Liverpool, he was isolated from the people who he knew best as well. Because ultimately there was only ever going to be one first back black player to play for Liverpool, and only he could really relate to what that was like at that particular time. He, he sort of hid a lot of the the feelings that he had about what he was suffering at Liverpool from the wider community in Liverpool late. So it's really sort of, it sort of explains, I would say, why it took so long for 
opportunities to come for players from that area. And a lot of the players from Liverpool later have actually gone into Everton and, and had good professional careers as well. It's, it's important to remember this isn't just about Liverpool and Everton. It's about having a career in professional football. And over the last sort of 15, 20 years, that has become more of a possibility in that area. It's really worth reading um, Howard Gale's uh, autobiography, which you know Simon wrote alongside him. His treatment by some of the um, people who would be legends of Liverpool was absolutely appalling. And you should go and check out the two articles Simon's written this month. Fantastic pieces. For the latest subscription offers, head to theathletic.com forward slash Liverpool pod. Well, hat-trick of home wins, and now Liverpool hit the road with three aways and three competitions before Brentford come to Anfield before the international break. James, well, Bournemouth in the League Cup on a Wednesday night. Do we care? Not really. I care. Well, well, we do, we do. We want to win it. We want to win everything. We, but, like, we don't care that much. <laughs> and, and then Luton at Kenilworth Road. Now, I remember the old days of the plastic pitch. Well, you know what? We, we, we struggled a lot at Kenilworth Road back in the 80s. And um, and it hasn't changed, apart from the pitch being grass of some description. Uh, well, how, do, how do you see the next two games, James? I think the three really coming up with Bournemouth, Luton, and then Toulouse, you, you just want to see Liverpool play with the same kind of belief and swagger and organisation and stability that we've seen on home turf in the last week. And you, it feels like another kind of test for this team to kind of another hurdle to clear in terms of being able to go away to to essentially smaller teams where, you know, tight-knit grounds, teams that are just going to try and make life difficult for you, that you might have to be patient because it was a problem that Liverpool had last season. You know, I think back to my trip, last trip to Bournemouth in March, which, what was it, six no, days? No, we, we don't talk about that. Six, we don't talk about it. Six days after demolishing Manchester United that was absolutely pitiful that that day um was that the low point last season no I'd say probably Wolves away was probably bleaker because I think that was I mean that was oh I'd wiped that one from my memory it could have been five or six um but there were too many to pick from yeah I, I, I still I think the League Cup is important because I think it it does provide a stage for some of those players we talked about earlier, the likes of Endo and probably, you know, I think we'll see Gomez and Matip get starts. Maybe another chance for young Luke Chambers, Harvey Elliott. Curtis Jones obviously needs a game. I'd imagine Cody Gakpo would start against Bournemouth as well, given given he didn't start on the weekend. So, um, so yeah, and you're, you're right, Tony. It's funny because, you know, obviously, people will think, oh, Luton away is an absolute gimme, but it still strikes a bit of fear into me after uh, some of those games in the, the late 80s, early early 90s. I saw a cracking picture earlier on, actually, of, of a snow-covered Kenilworth Road with Paul Walsh with the orange tango ball at his feet. Yeah, I remember it well. Some of those players will have never seen anything like those Luton dressing rooms with Lee Simon. Well, I have to admit, I haven't been to Kenilworth Road before, but... I don't mind making the admittance that when I was a kid, uh, we used to go to uh, Heritage Market a lot in Liverpool, which became the Stanley Dock Market, which is now the setting for well, one of the settings for Peaky Blinders when they, they film um, that series. It's an incredible one. Of, I think it's, it's the biggest brick building in the world. Anyway, it's an incredible old tobacco building warehouse, which is right by Everton's new grounds. And we used to go there every week. And they used to have this, um, they used to have this, uh, there was loads of market stalls there. And there was this one that had all these mad footy kits. 
And I remember just being drawn to the Luton Town kit, A, because I had no sponsor, and B, because of the orange, navy, and white sort of combination of colours. And I bought it, and I was, like, hanging around wearing a Luton Town shirt. I didn't like, I didn't have, any, I don't know anything about them. Didn't know any of the players, but I just liked the shirt. So I've always sort of had this strange fascination from afar about Luton. Um, and it's a great story, obviously, going all the way down to the National League, all the way back up again and doing it, you know, on a sort of a business model, if you like, which is not based around spending loads of money. So my admiration for them is great. I hope they stay up. I'm not sure whether they will, but I think uh, if Liverpool perform as they have been, then they're probably going to be in for a difficult afternoon. They should, on current form, have too much of a Luton. But yeah, we'll be, um, we'll be, an awkward place to go. I think a lot of people find it awkward. And it's the first visit to Kenilworth Road for more than 15 years. Xavi Alonso scored a, um, a long-range goal there, I seem to remember. Alonso has shot for goal! And he scored from his own half of the field! What an unbelievable finish! It was a chaotic game, that, wasn't that it? 5-3. Yeah. Did Cissé did miss a penalty? Am I making that up? Was that one of the games where he missed a penalty in Rafford's told somebody else to take it and see say he took it instead. Yes, he did, yeah, he missed a pen that day. So penalty to Liverpool, which would enable them to go 2-2. And uh, the responsibility is Gibriel Cissé. Can Beresford do anything about this? Oh, he saved it! He could do something about it! It was the day that Jan Kronkamp made his um, Liverpool debut. Yes, I wonder what happened soon. Who could forget? Oh, with, see... See, kids, easy, you learn something every day on this podcast. You know, talking about 5-3. You see, that's what's wrong with the game. Too many goals, too much entertainment. Don't want any of that. Right, go there, score too early on, bore people from Luton to death. Just bore them. Bore me, bore everyone. That's what football's all about. Well, that's it from Walk On, your Liverpool podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Thanks to James and Si, and you two for joining us. We'll be back with Walk On next Wednesday, and we'll catch you then. The Athletic.